You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, we've got Dr. Brian Romanchuk. Brian is a noted blogger, and he used to end of a, how do you say, it, like a voice on fixed income and bond markets. He is an expert on the monetary system. So it's going to be awesome to talk to you, Brian. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's wonderful to have you. Oh, okay, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Brian, um, I wanted to start by talking a bit about your background. So, you know, how you got into business. And so, you know, you, know, you, you, you started off in engineering. You did a PhD at Cambridge in control systems. So, you know, how did you go from that to uh, financial markets? Um, it's... Basically, the like the, the the quick run to the background. I was an electrical engineer, and uh, there I sort of jerked into control engineering. Control engineering is the math a mathematical field, and weirdly enough, it's actually used in mainstream economics, optimal control theory, um, which is sort of a defunct branch of control theory, and it's 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 really it's the mathematics of modeling systems. And you're not like from an engineering perspective, you're not tied to a particular branch. Like you're not tied to electrical or mechanical. What you're designing is I need a controller to make a system do what I want. And could be chemical, could be mechanical. And like in aeronautics, like how do you translate the pilot moves controls? How do you translate that to control action on the plane? So it's, it's, a, it's a theory of mathematical models. And so basically I turned into, like I was an electrical engineer, but I, I've turned into essentially an applied mathematician. And uh, I was in academia, I was teaching at McGill, and uh, I decided I wanted to get out of academia. And I ran into a guy who was working in the area at, in, in sort of finance as a researcher. So uh, I played rugby with them and I, I ran into them and uh, got introduction. And so I applied and they needed a quant analyst. And that, basically that's it. Like there's, there's a lot of programming, like the in practice, um, cause I mean, I, I, I also did a lot of soft, basically I was all a self-trained software engineer. And if you look at markets, most of your work as an analyst is dealing with data. Uh, you're, 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 you're getting data in from different formats, sticking it on a database, cleaning it, building models. Usually the model, the model building is like 5% of the work and 95% of the work is the data acquisition. If you're senior, if you're, you know, if you're senior enough, hooray, you can dump that work on someone else. But usually, it's your, uh, uh, you know, you're 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 getting the data 
And that's actually where most of the effort is, um, but uh, in, in terms of time. And then after that, once the data is in, okay, then you actually think about the models. So anyway, so, I, so that's sort of how the, the transition worked. Like, so uh, my background, uh, mathematics, and that, that was it. Like I'm used to mathematics, you know, what are properties of mathematical models? How do you, how do you deal with that as a programmer? And so that, that sort of covered a lot of the, uh, a lot of things that wasn't finance. I mean, to, to learn finance, I actually, I mean, uh, the CFA, I did the, I forget the, the terminology I'm supposed to use, but uh, CFA charter holder, I, I went through that. So um, that covers a lot of the basics of finance. I mean, I had studied option pricing ahead of that. So I looked at option pricing, like the mathematics of it. So. That wasn't, you know, that that sort of uh, slightly tied to what I worked on. I mean, uh, you know, similar mathematics I ran into in control. And uh, so option pricing, fixed income pricing in, in general, and the rest I, I sort of picked up on the job. Where, where I worked, they, they were economists, but they were semi-conventional, like they were, uh, had ties to heterodox economists like uh, Hyman Minsky. And so I read a lot. I, the, the only economist I read that made any sense was actually Hyman Minsky. So I picked up a lot from him. So I was sort of a Minsky. And, and then later on, I went to the Case de Depot in, in, in Montreal, also in Montreal. And I, I worked as a quant, uh, fixed income quant. Uh, initially, sort of, uh, and the team that handled funding trade provinces, swaps, and then later on, I headed up a new group of uh, fixed income quants. But uh, that's, and then after that, I just uh, moved in. Um, we're, I'm working part-time as a consultant and uh, writing. And so that's, that's why I ended up uh, here. Got it, got it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's super cool. And you know, your blog is bondeconomics.com. I think it's a fantastic place to learn. Uh, you know, a lot about, you know, how central banks, how the monetary system, how stuff like that works. And, and uh, you know, one thing that's, well, you know, let's, let's start with um, what happened uh, earlier this week. So earlier this week, the Fed hiked 75 basis points. And even though previously they said that they would only hike 50. And you published an article titled Fed Panics. And, and so, you know, where you, where you sort of said that, you know, this is a signal that they have thrown out whatever remains of the models that suggested that inflation is transitory. And so they are hiking until something breaks. So, you know, one, in the previous meeting, when they did say that uh, they were they, that they weren't going to hike 75 basis points. So, you know, what is the value of forward guidance, you know, going, you know, going ahead? Well, yeah, yeah. So the forward guidance, yeah, it's, um, they threw it, yeah, they threw it away. Like, see, like the, the, just to step back, the, if you look at a bond, let's say a two-year bond, you're comparing it, like if it's a two-year treasury, you want to compare it to a risk-free short-term instrument. Like you could either hold a two-year treasury or you could sit in risk-free money market instruments that are earned, you know, the, the policy rate. Like when they set the rate, it's, uh, I mean, it's an interbank rate technically, but all the risk-free rates trade near that. So, 
you basically have a choice. Do I do I want to own a two year treasury or do I want to own uh, or do I want to be in cash? That's the uh, the bonds rate. So you're looking at you're saying from the bond point, you're saying what's the expected path over the next two years? If you're looking at two years, the five years, what what do you expect it to be over those you know over that path? And that's where the forward guidance is. You sort of say, look, the Fed sort of says, oh, well, we're going to be hiking. We're going to be doing this. And so that implies a certain path for the Fed funds. And that implies, okay, this is roughly, I mean, there's a little bit of, you know, a term premium, but it's telling you roughly, oh, this is where the two years should be. And the idea is that the forward guidance says, oh, well, we're kind of worried or, well, well, no, well, I mean, normally they wouldn't say we're worried. Like you would say, oh, we're not that worried about inflation. If, if they think the two years too high, which they don't now, but like if you go back to like 10 years ago, oh, well, the, the, the market's pricing in too many rate hikes. So they'll say, well, you know, we don't think we don't think it's going to go that high. And so they're, they're, they're trying to influence like they set the short term rate. But what they want to do is they want to push down longer term rates which are priced off where the you know where the markets are pricing where is the overnight rate going to go and like in you know we have to go way back to last decade when they weren't worried about inflation they were worried about low inflation and so they wanted to you know uh talk down too high a, a rate and then conversely it you know if they think uh, interest rates are too low because the like mortgage rates, if, if they think the, the term rates are too low mortgage and it's too stimulative, they might want to talk up the bond. Right? And that's to a certain extent, you know, uh, say, well, you know, hey, we think bond yields are too low. And this, which implies because the more mortgages like a, a fixed, like a 30 year mortgage in the US, it's prices are spread off the treasury. So right. if they're too low, the mortgage rate ends up too low. And then, oh no, you say, this is too stimulative. And so they might want to talk it up. They say, look, no, no, the bond market, no, you, you guys are too, uh, you know, you're, 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 you know, too much exuberance in the bond market. So they, they, they want to be able to push around the, the bond yields by talking about, and that's, that's sort of the forward guidance. And, but the problem is if they just start talking, you know, they're totally contradictory. Well, you don't pay attention to what they have to say anymore. And that's that's basically what's happened. I mean, to be honest, no one really should be trusting the central bank. The central banker is not going to uh, he's not in your interest. He's he's your uh, they, you know, they, they want you know, they want to move the bond yields around uh, to, 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 to meet an economic objective. They're not there to make bond investors money. If the bond investors lose, well, you know, tough luck, they don't care. It's not their problem. So, um, you know, from the bond, from a bond investor point of view, you, you can't take everything a central bank says at face value. You, you have to be paranoid as a bond investor. Your job is to be paranoid about everything because it's all contractual. It's all legal contractual obligation. And you know you're 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 enforcing you're, you have contracts you want to enforce them to get money and you have to be paranoid about everyone and everything and so you don't completely trust so you 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 need to know like the, the central bank does set the short rate like you don't argue with that but later on you know you you have to be a bit suspicious but and 
ideally you say, well, if they think it's low, it gives you an idea of their thinking and maybe you accept it, right? If, they, if, they, if they're basically saying we're not going to hike rates soon, well, maybe that's, you know, you say, well, okay, probably don't want to hike soon. But that's the thing is that you have to be careful how much and how far, because normally they should know what they're going to do over the next few months unless something blows up. Like if there's a crisis, like everybody knows. I mean, if there's a crisis, yeah, they cut rates. If, if inflation takes off, okay, maybe they'll hike rate. I mean, that's, uh, but that's the thing is that for the hikes, it doesn't really make sense to hike 75, like to go 50, 50, 50, 75, 50. It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense because like the, the, the whole curve, it's smoothed out. And you no, know, you move a 25 basis point. If you add an extra 25 basis points, it's not that big a deal. Like, you know, what people are worried about is you say, look, at least before this week, you say, look, okay, now they're hiking at 50 basis points of meeting, which to a certain extent surprised me, but they were so far behind the curve. You're going 50, so you're just plotting out, okay, okay, they're going to go 50 basis points of meeting until 3%. Now that, that got revised up, like last, before this week, you say, okay, it's peaking around three. So it's like 50, another 50. And, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, since it's averaged out, it doesn't really matter. Like if, if you go 25, 50, 75, that averages out the same thing as 50, 50, 50. So, and, and moving it up, like what really matters is the peak. The, you know, the peaker is like, whether it's 3% or 4%, that's the big thing that matters. Whether, you, you know, they get there, you know, with an extra 25, if they add 25 bips, if they terminate at three, it doesn't really matter like whether they added you went 75 50 50 or 50 50 50 it's you know it's not worth that much because they're just going to get there maybe they get there a half a meeting earlier well so what i mean when you're averaging that over 10 years which is like for for a 30-year mortgage you're like it's you know it has off like it's not exactly the same thing because because a mortgage is amortized and it has options so they're not compare like like a thirty year mortgage has very little to do with thirty year treasury because a thirty year treasury isn't amortizing like it's 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 like it's very much back weighted like the thirty year principles where all the payments are uh, in a low interest rate environment whereas a mortgage you're playing with principal so basically like a like in the U S your thirty year mortgages is where the action is. And that's roughly a 10-year, seven-year treasury, at least it used to be. I'm not a mortgage expert. And so, it, I mean, basically, you say, you know, how much you move, you know, you, know, you move the 10-year by a few bait, it doesn't matter that much. Like, you know, if you have a highly levered bet, like if you're highly levered, fixed income is interesting because every basis point matters. But if you're highly levered, you should know what you're doing and, you know, but generally speaking, uh, for, for most people, you don't want to be higher than fixed income. And, you know, so who cares? I mean, you know, 25 basis points here or there doesn't matter for, for most things. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the problems is people get too excited about little micro stories about 10 basis, like, no, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you have to take a, a bit of a big picture of these things. like. Yeah, 15 basis points matters a lot if you're, you know, if you got 2%, you know, if you're, if you only have 2% equity in a, in a rates position, yeah, 98% hey, leverage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 10 basis points is, is interesting, but no, uh, economically, it's, it, it's not.
Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. Anyway, so it was a bit of a long, but that that's sort of like the big bad. That's sort of how I'm looking at. It. But yeah, so that see what the Fed did. Uh, they got backed in the corner about the 75. Like the only thing that really makes sense is if they want to do 75 each meeting. And that would be, that would, the only reason to do that, because at 50 basis points a meeting, like if it, like they're talking about a terminal, like, like the finishing hikes at around three or three and a half, they're going to get there pretty fast. So it doesn't really matter. Like if they go at 50 or 75, it doesn't matter. But the only reason you, re, you know, you might as well just do a 50 but uh, like eat per meeting and, and then, okay, you wait. The only reason you want to go 75 is you think you're, they're really behind the curve and they need to go to like four or 5%, uh, which should, you know, be for, for a bond, you know, for a bond investor would be pretty scary because bond, bond yields are not pricing a 5% uh, Fed funds rate. And then, hey, you know, that, that should be exciting. And to a certain extent, the market, I think, immediately blew up a bit this week, but it's sort of come back uh, from the last pricing. I'm, I'm, I haven't, right. haven't really looked. I saw some pricing this morning, but it, it's, um, but yeah, basically the, the bond market isn't that convinced it's going to be shooting much more than three, three and a half percent or whatever. Because, uh, you know, the, the, you know they're, they're saying that either A, like the belief in the bond market is, I mean, there, there's two ways of interpreting. Like, like every investor has their own thing. But if you want to look at the like how I would interpret the pricing, either investors believe that inflation will roll over uh, for any number of reasons, or something blows up in the global economy, not necessarily the U.S. Like the, I, you know, there, there's a lot of people who are worried about the U.S. economy. I, I, I don't track. Like I'm, I, I don't, since I, I don't trade, I'm not doing uh, investment recommendations. I don't spend a whole lot of time agonizing over the data. I just, you know, look at uh, fairly, you know, low key, and I, the the housing market will slow because of higher interest rates and. That, that I would say is your major effect to the higher rates, but that's going to take time. You know, you, you know, the, it takes months to buy or sell a house construct, right. you know, houses are under construction. It takes months to finish a house. Like the, you know, everyone is working on it. You know, it, it's not going to stop dead outside of like a 2008 scenario where everyone's funding got cut off at the same time. But basically 2008 was different. You had a hard stop on activity because uh, funding, funding market shut down, no one would loan money, and so no, nobody could do anything, and so it was just like a hard stop. Uh, without that, you're, I mean, out, even if you're really pessimistic on housing, it's got a long momentum, it's gonna slow, and that slowing takes time. And realistically speaking, for the things that are going wrong in the global economy, because the energy spike and so forth, it's probably going to be blowing up a lot. If anything goes really wrong in the global economy, it's going to it's going to kick in before the the U.S. housing market. So that and that's sort of I would say with the pricing, you say you know people say yeah inflation's bad, the Fed's going to keep hiking, but they're going to be forced to reverse because something is going to blow up. That that's sort of what the pricing is saying to me. It's not like the the terminal rate isn't five percent, and uh, Basically, saying now that you know something is something is going to derail it, 
Like, but if you if you if you just sort of ignored all the energy price spike, if you just sort of looked at inflation, ignored what's happening in the world, you could say, well, you know, why doesn't it go to five? And um, you know, like if you if you but you know you can't ignore everything that's happening in the world. That and that's that's basically it. And that's that's the you know you could say if if we can dodge a crisis, yeah, I mean the bond market still could be you know. Uh, pricing too low a terminal height but that's really sort of what i see but not I mean, the thing is not air, like every person will put a different spin on it but on average all their positions average out to that view yeah some people are more bullish more bearish but the market price is where everyone everyone is sort of canceled out and they can't move the price anymore mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you know you, you, you just sort of mentioned um the impact of these rate hikes on housing. So one thing that's interesting is that a great deal of focus, especially among investors in the market has been on labor market dynamics where the labor market is usually described to be hot or to be, uh, or, you know, usually described, uh, you know, we, we see that companies are finding it tough to hire good people, et cetera. And so and when it comes to these rate hikes, now how long does it take for the rate hikes to eventually pass into labor? Because that seems like the one thing yeah. that the Fed is keeping their eye uh, their focus on yeah that's the the, the issue so this is where i'm sort of the heterodox uh well we so, so like a modern monetary theory mmt we're skeptical about the effect of interest rates on the economy and i don't like from my point of view like the labor market is companies hiring someone that's it like they don't and is anyone i mean outside of some weird places like you know, maybe a mortgage broker or something like outside of maybe some corner cases where your business literally depends on interest rates. Why is an interest rate going to affect my hiring decision? It's going to be, you know, is this person, you know, that I'm trying to hire, they can add value. You know, they, right. they, I'm in my short workers that probably do I want to expand uh, capacity and that that's where it's coming in. And you say, so it's, it's not where it's coming in is okay. Expectations. Cause you, a lot of it is, okay, what do I, you know, how do I feel about business in the future? And so it's, it's through that channel. So it's, to the extent that the interest rates are going to affect things, it's going to be, will future business. So my worried, the future business will slow. And that's it. How quickly would it show up? Um, my guess is it's going, to, I mean, sort of, there's sort of two angles to it. The, the, how it works quickly is their interest rate hikes will cause a panic in financial markets. And, cur- and the currency markets do matter. It, 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 so I think we I think we just dropped connection. So you know you were talking about how currency markets were important, and yeah, yeah. The I guess like to your answer, I mean I guess I should have given you a shorter answer. But there, there's two there's two ways. One is uh, the broad financial markets, including commodities, panic uh, commodities and currencies. They panic uh, because of the rate hikes. And that causes an immediate, oh, things are going bad and people cut back. So, and uh, stock markets, that, so that's sort of, there could be almost immediate sort of drawback. 
but if if you don't have a complete crisis in the various you know financial markets why would you know people people in the real kind it's going to take time for them to say oh well maybe we'll slow down hiring like some might some some you know people people look at the stock market they might worry but not everyone does hiring processes are slow so it's going to take time and where you where you're going to probably see it i mean well my i'm a bug on housing problem the, the housing construction certainly like canada us that'll slow there it's a major employer because uh, and, and so that would slow but that's going to take time that takes time for it to filter in and so that's it so i but it's that is going to be what they call long and variable lags i mean it would it, it'll take time for it to show up and in, you know, for, for it to cool the housing market. But the, the, the thing is, you know, whether is it cooling already, you know, that's the other issue. Because uh, to, to a certain extent, people drop a labor market, things improve. I mean, you know, as the, you know, the pandemic sort of, everyone gets used to it, there might be more people drawn back in. I mean, that's because that was part of the problem. You had people leaving, then you could have people coming back. So, you know, it, it also might cool on its own. Um, you know, so yeah, it's 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 hard to say what you know the the exact effect. I mean, I I don't have a strong opinion after that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, and uh, and the other thing um, is that so when it comes to credit growth, so one thing that we uh, one thing that we see on Twitter is that there are sort of two. Uh, sides of the coin when it comes to inflation, deflation, and credit growth. It's that you know, there's, there's the group that says, hey, look, you know, the Fed has been printing money. You know, they've been printing trillions and trillions of dollars ever since, you know, the Great Recession. And now we are bound to see inflation. And, and you know, the other side says, you know, what the Fed is doing is not actually printing money. You know, they're adding these things called bank reserves, which are not the spendable kind of money. You know, they just sit there in an account. And you know, how far do you agree with you know either side, and how far do you agree with you know that the with the reserves are in money group? Yeah. Um. Well, it's yeah. It, the pr money printing. Yeah. That that sort of sets my teeth on edge. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I like I, I, I have a you know some of my blog articles. Like I have books. And one of them, I, I have the title, it's a little bit of a joke, but it's abolish money from economics. It's like anything involving money, people have problems. There's too much uh, sort of mysticism about it. But uh, like reserves, okay, technically they're money. So I'm not going to say, but the, they're in the monetary aggregates. But yeah, you can't spend them. It, it's, it's like what it is, is if you look at it, is the bank, is leaving, you know, the 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 Fed uh, or Bank of Canada. Central bank is a bank, but who banks with it are other banks, and they've got money. What 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 are called reserves? It's a bit of a misnomer, but that's what everyone calls it. But uh, it's a deposit with banks with the central bank, and they they can't really they, they can shuffle it around, but they can't really take it out. Um, what because they're basically just replacing treasury bills uh, or the equivalent because because the banks need liquid instruments and you know they you know they're it's just a, from their point of view okay I can I can either buy a treasury bill and lend money to the federal government through the treasury 
or I can leave the money on the uh, deposit at, at the Fed. I mean, that's, and that's it. They're, in both cases, you know, the treasury owns the central bank. And so you're, you're, you're ultimately lending to the same entity. It's just a different package. It's just that one is included in money and one isn't. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more complicated, but yeah, it, the, that I don't, you know, it doesn't have that much of an effect. Like to an extent there's a, an alleged effect is because it reduces bond yields. And even that, because, because the idea is that uh, the Fed is buying them, taking them the, uh, the, the bonds out of the market. So, you know, the idea is, well, it increased demand. So the price, price of the bond goes up and prices and yields move in the opposite direction. Right. Uh, first thing you always have to remember as a bond investor, price up, yield down, vice versa. Yeah. Um, the, so, so that's pushing down bond yields. But realistically, that's not, uh, it, no one has a really good estimate of that effect. And I mean, I looked at it, I'm skeptical, but it's, it's not that large an effect. No matter, no matter how you do it, you look at it, there's no one can really say this is a really big effect. And it's, it's psychological. What it's come down to is everyone thinks it's inflationary. Everyone, and this is the thing, I, you know, it, it comes down to everyone believes that's inflationary. And if the thing is, if everyone believes it to a certain extent, well, you know, what can you do? Like they're changing the behavior based on this belief, even though it makes no sense. And yeah, okay, I and mean, that's that's sort of what you, it, it's it's coming into sort of psychology. I mean, it's, it's really like anthropology here. It's like you're trying to understand how other people are reacting to something that, like, it's you know, it's it's just sort of uh, you know, like a religious cult or of some sort. You're just saying, well, this this is how they're reacting to it, and maybe it has an effect on the economy, but there isn't, you know, it's it's it, it's not an obvious like. People will say, well, you, if you like, the, the, it's called the quantity theory of money, you increase the amount of money by 10%, uh, prices have to rise by 10%. That's sort of the simplest version of the quantity yeah. theory. Yeah, that doesn't work. And, but, uh, but, but it could increase activity. And if everyone is, if everyone's, con you know, if everyone sort of believes the prices will go up, well, actually, you know, prices are set by people. And if people, you know they they will raise prices so so yeah it's it's sort of it's it's very much a cycle but none of it's reliable like there's a psychological impact like you could say but it, you you can't you're gonna have a very hard time isolating uh, what the effect is and if you go back you know a decade there was you know you know inflation was stuck below two percent and hey they're printing money and it did nothing so it's it's sort of you know, all that's happened this time is inflation did finally rise and they're all, everyone's running around saying, yeah, yeah, we told you. Yeah, but you told us that in Japan in, the, you know, the 2000s and in everywhere else in the 2010s. And it was, yeah. it did work then. And that's, that's, that, that's basically, you know, uh, you know, I guess there's not much more to say than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the and the other thing that's uh, the, that is interesting is so when you read Warren Mosler's um, yeah, soft Mosler, currency, yeah. yep, soft currency economics, you know he talks about how you know banks lend when they want to lend, and then they borrow reserves in the market in order to meet whatever the reservation requirement is. And so you know is that is that true? Is that the way banks actually work? Do they just lend? Well, yeah, I mean the the 
the, I mean, one of the simplest ways of doing it is you can just say, look, look at Canada before the pandemic and they messed it up. If, 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 you, if you look at Canada under like the modern Canada, they, they abolished reserve requirements, right? They held zero reserves and banks operated. If you look at it from the outside, they, they operated pretty much the same way that U.S. banks. You look at them, it's the same economic position. You could pick up a report. You know, you talk to a bank analyst. See, if you look at how do how do banks operate in Canada, how they operate in the U.S. In fact, you know, in fact, Canadian banks operate in the U.S. They don't talk about you know there's reserves. It's, it's just it's it's an arcane little rule regulation, and it doesn't really affect their decision making because that's because the you know if you if you do have reserves. You don't, you know, you just look at it and say, like, back in the day when there weren't excess reserves in the system, you just said, look, um, the, the the central bank has a target for the over for, for the Fed funds rate. And that is the rate for borrowed reserves. Banks could borrow. And if you're just short, you know, if you at the end of the day, you look, hey, we're short, you know, we're short uh, uh, on our you know reserve position. They have to go on the market to, to, to get back the balance and they don't know what's happening globally. See, I'm sure. And so, and, and they have to, you have to hit your reserve target. So if they, they have to pay whatever the rate is, like, it's not like they don't have an option and on this, it's not like, Oh, well, we'll, we'll miss it. No, they got to hit the target. So they got to board, they got to go in the fed funds. And no matter, no, basically, if they're short, no matter what the price is, they're going to pay. And so there always has to be, there has the reserves, excess reserves have, to, you know, there always have to be reserves in the system to allow them to buy it at that price. And otherwise, it's going to blow away from the, the cent, you know, where the central bank, like where the Fed wanted it to trade, because they, they have a target rate. Yeah. And if, if, if it moves too far away, because there's a shortage, the you know the the New York the, the you know their open market their their desk has to go in. They have to do transactions that create reserves. Now, if there's too much reserves, uh, back in the day, uh, excess reserves didn't get reserves. You know, they didn't get an interest on it, and people didn't want. It. They would just dump it. And they would drive it below, and so they would have to drain it out, and that's it. So. They would have no choice. They 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 did they didn't just blindly, you know. They they had a target for the for the old, like where Fed funds trade, and so they had to have the right amount of reserves to hit that target. I mean, right now that's all out the window. Right now it's like there's an excess and they pay reserves, so they're indistinguishable from T bills, and so nobody really cares anymore. So like they just you know they have if someone was actually short, they would borrow it and they get because they're. You know, everyone has a huge excess of reserves, uh, and in fact, since since there are no reserve requirements in the U.S., actually, they don't even need to do that anymore. They're just stuck. You know, they just they're they're stuck with. We have a balance with the with the Fed. We could either buy a T bill with it to get rid of it, because like if if they buy a T bill, whoever they're buying it from, uh, you know, they get the T bill. They shoot away the the you know the what reserves yeah. you know they, they lose the set the settlement balance is the better term so they they you could reduce your settlement balance but the thing is 
whoever they're trading with, they're, they're, it goes through the banking system. So they lose the settlement balance. Well, guess what? The bank on the other end, like, because we're, you know, you know, you know, even if they buy the treasury bill from, let's say, a pension fund, the pension fund is going to have a correspondent bank. And hey, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the bank on the other end of the transaction, hey, gets, gets the settlement balance. So it's, so, you know, you get rid of it. The other guy has more. And that's it. And, and but that's the thing is you didn't worry about it. you don't because you you can't you you don't know uh, like when you're making a lending decision you don't know when like you do expect the people you know people generally when they borrow money they want to spend it you know they they might leave it in the bank for a while but eventually the idea is that they're probably going to spend it but then the thing is you don't know when that's going to happen so. You know, you're you're always managing on day to day. You say, oh, we're short. You know, our liquidity position is short, and they have to do something about it. And that that that's what banks do. Mm -hmm. And and so when it comes to Fed policy, so you know, what is the most the Fed can do in order to force the banks to lend? And you know, short of say the government stepping in and guaranteeing all loans, you know, how much power does the Fed have to actually get these banks to lend? Oh, to lend. Well, I mean, see, now they probably want to slow it down, but like. In if if the problem, like you say, look at the last decade, where the problem was is that uh, banks don't want to lend. Yeah, you're you're stuck. They, they, it's the the pushing on a string. The idea is that what what they do is they you know they would lower if if they want to increase activity, they want to create, they would cut the the risk free rate, and then hopefully that will induce people to go in and borrow. Um, but I mean, it doesn't necessarily happen because someone wants, someone has to want, you know, to borrow. You, you can't, you, like, you know, the bank, the, the only way sort of a bank can sort of unilaterally increase the amount of loans it's making is to cut its own lending standards. Because like they, they, they do credit checks, at least they're supposed to. And, you know, they they they'll have a standard. The only way sort of a bank could increase you know the amount of lending it's doing is we're gonna we're gonna cut back our lending standards. And but you know sooner or later they're gonna be lending money to people whose business plan. Well, actually we don't plan on paying this loan back. You know I think like you know at some point you don't want to make the loan. It's just not economic. And you know the Fed the Fed can sort of. Like in a like in a recession, banks tighten it. Like they're they're pro cyclical. They're going to tighten their lending standards because they're worried. The Fed could sort of go down, and they can sort of you know wrap knuckle say, look guys, guys and gals, I guess nowadays you know the you know look people, be you know you're 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 way too cautious here. Thing everything's going to come up roses. You know uh, loosen your lending standards. Um, but generally speaking. Bank, bank, the bank regulators don't want to go around saying loosen lending standards. Like the the usual thing is, uh, you know, they they might they're more worried about banks being irresponsible and making bad loans because ultimately, like that causes banks to blow up and that doesn't look good for the regulators. The regulators. To the extent they're going to go after a thing, it's, it's usually to say, hey, you guys are, you know, getting a little, you know, you, you people here are just a, a little bit, uh, you know, you're not, you know, you're, you're taking too much risk. But, you know, the, you know, the hope, like, 
the, the story, like the, the conventional story is, if you lower interest rates, people are going to want to borrow. Supply and demand, you lower the cost of money, people want to borrow more. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, but that, that's sort of the hope. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, what will happen is, is the, the, the people who believe that will just keep adjusting the data until they're say, hey, look, we told you so. But, you know, they'll just keep changing around the data. Because in general, people want to borrow when, you know, when they see a need for fixed investment. Like for housing, yeah, for mortgages, people do. People are very interest rate sound. That's how, you know, so, you know, more, like interest rate policy, yep. you know, the conventional story works for housing because it is very interest rate sensitive. Uh, to, to a lesser extent, you see that with cars, like auto loans. But after that, businesses on the business sector, businesses generally are looking at, um, you know, they're looking at property. They're, they're, I mean, this is the post-Keynesian story that, you know, you're looking at, and, you know, do I need to add capacity uh, and, and, and I'll invest? But if, if I'm not running at capacity, I'm not, I'm not going to invest because a business firm's hurdle rates are way higher than the riskier rate. Like, you know, typically, I mean, everything you hear, like it's like 20%. I don't, I've never heard anyone use a hurdle rate, anything under 20%. You know, it's like, I expect to get 20% return on the equity. And okay, maybe with the, if they're borrowing, okay, they can lower their borrowing cost. But even then, you know, that's, you know, that's a credit spread. It's not direct, you know, there, it, it, there's a lot of gaps between the Fed, the overnight risk free rate and a term credit rate. Like, you know, if, 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 if corporate spreads are high, you know, you can do whatever you want with the risk free rate. That's not gonna, that's not gonna cut corporate lending. And so it, it's, Generally speaking, where, where the interest rates matter, where it shows up in borrowing, it's on mortgages and autos, and you know that's it. And you know, it, but right now that's not their their problem. Is is that hey, things are a bit too exuberant, so they're actually they're slamming on the brakes. Yeah. Okay, and the and the other thing is that you know you when we were talking about QE just a little bit earlier, you know, you mentioned that to an extent it reduces yields, but. Now, on the, on the flip side, you know, what we're seeing right now is QT. So, you know, how much of an impact does QT, you know, similarly, how much, how much of an impact does QT actually have on the economy? Yeah, I mean, but once again, I mean, how much, I mean, it, it should raise yield, but it's going to be hard. Like how much it, of the, it, like how much, uh, you know, when you, when you see yields going up right now, you know, how much of it is attributed to QT versus the fact, um, yeah. you know, the market is pricing in additional inflation? Yeah, I, I, it, in the, you know, to, to be able to do it, you got to be able to predict um, bond yields accurately. And then you can say, this is the effect. Like you can say, well, if you, if you had an accurate model for bond yields, like if you were able to predict, here's where the bond yields are, and then you say, aha, now you, now you can isolate the effect of QT. But, you know, you have to be able to predict the bond yields and then have this QT factor. The, but that's, you know, Assume you have a model that can predict the bond, and that we don't get to that. Uh, that that sort of that first stage is where the whole thing breaks down. No one, no one really. I mean, uh, you know, to like to take independent facts, like 
I can predict the 10 year if you give me the nine year, the 11 year. Yeah, I mean, sure, like no kidding. But it, like if, if you sort of say, if you, if you say based on factors not in already in the yield curve, it's pretty hard to get a good estimate. Most, most of the models that people have are terrible. And that's the thing, if you've got a terrible bond yield model, well, what's the effect of Q, well, QT? Well, you know, what, what's the effect of a factor within a model that already can't predict the thing? And that, that's what you're up against. And uh, it's, it's, you know, like, like seriously, like, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you could do it. QT could have an effect. They dump all their bonds at once. Yeah, that'll have an effect. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but they aren't dumping all at once because they're not nuts. And that's the thing It's like, it's being done in a gradual fashion and the, you know, the worries about where the terminal rate is going to dominate the effect of QT. Maybe it's raised and maybe it's not, but look, I mean, bond yields have been jumping around 25 basis points a day, right? And, you know, they're up, they're down, you know, like 25 basis point a day. So, and that's probably about the, the like the, the QT effect is probably on the order of 25 basis points. So, I mean, when this thing is jumping around 25 basis points a day, you know, an added what's what's an added twenty five basis points on top of that, right? It, it's 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 in the big picture. It's not, uh, you know, um, you know, it's it's not big enough to say. Well, if it was hundreds of basis points, then you could tell. But if it's like twenty five, who knows, right? And because no one can no one can predict where it's going to be within twenty five basis points. So that's that's that one. Uh, uh yeah, no, totally agree. And and you know, let's you know, let's um, you know, take a plane and go to Japan. And one thing that I know, one thing that's interesting is so Japan has uh, the Japanese economy is typically based on importing raw materials and exporting finished goods. And so what we're seeing right now is stuff like oil and broadly speaking, commodity prices being elevated. And obviously, you know, some of the some of the fraud has come down over the last, you know, few last few days, last few weeks. But then, broadly speaking, you know, they're still elevated, and Japan has seen the impact of that. And Japanese inflation, um, to an extent, is being celebrated by people like Kuroda-san uh, because Japan is finally seeing inflation. However, you know, one would argue that you know this is not the good kind of inflation that comes along with economic growth. It's the bad kind of inflation because it's being because it's imported inflation we're seeing. Um, import, uh, we're seeing raw materials that get imported. We're seeing those prices go up. So you know what? I, you know, I'm curious to see. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, on uh, so the Japanese rates decision. So we're recording this on Friday, the 17th of June. So you know, last night I think it was um, Bank of Japan decided that you know they are not going to change you know their policies of QQE or you know raise interest rates, and they just left that unchanged. And so. No, and so you know, what are your thoughts on that? You know, what was your take when you when you, when you read that? And do you think you know that's the right yeah, decision? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I I'm not on top of it. I mean, I've I've seen people uh, sort of go nuts about Japan again. Like, it's the the widowmaker tree, and you know the people want. I mean, it, this. I mean, I I got into finance in 1998, and actually the widowmaker trade was old news even then in fixed income it's just see the the rates people like actual people who trade interest rates government bonds they they sort of they learned the hard way in the 90s but the it's the people who are not in rates that keep going back after it their credit 
equity commodity and they just go they read and, and but they're, they're not rates people and they just keep doing the same thing um yeah the, I, I i'm not on top of the japanese situation i so but they you know they're capping the yield and they're just saying oh this this will blow over and they don't really you know i you know i guess they're, they're not too worried about it because because the import inflation it, it's going to spike like I guess, you know, can can oil prices double again? Well, I guess possibly, but, you know, it's more likely that something breaks. So you're, it, you've had a huge spike. I mean, the, you know, from the Japanese, yeah, I mean, it's not good, but it's, you know, probably, you know, you, you on the rate of change basis, that's it. I mean, you've had a, you know, a, a level drop, you're, you're, what you can buy is dropped and you know but the thing is it's not you know is that going to continue and you know that's the thing is that uh, i mean the domestic labor like i said i i can't i mean i would find it surprising that you know outside of those important commodities that things are changing because the energy prices energy is embedded in everything so it's going to Prices will rise, so there, there, there's going to be a delayed reaction uh, all, all through the production change. Higher energy costs will show up, and but that's the thing is that can it persist? You know, and that's the thing. I, I, you know, obviously their decisions that they don't see it persisting, and then you know this go back uh, on the level. So yeah, I think that's you know the like people got excited about it. And well, the, see, the interesting thing about what they're doing is, is it's not just QE. They're actually saying we're capping the yield on the JGB. Yeah, and so where that's interesting is they're saying the price of the bond. And uh, it's, you know, betting against something with a fixed price is, you know, to a certain extent. See, it's only if it moves below that. But if it stays at, you know, near that fixed price, well, there isn't that much of a risk. And that, that's sort of the problem you have with currency pegs. It's, it's very much like a currency peg situation. And, you know, because uh, betting against it, it isn't that costly because it has to move away from the peg. And I think yields did fall. So anyone, you know, shorting JGBs did, did take losses, but they're not, pro you know, I mean, I, I haven't seen the number, but I don't, it's not that large. At least compared to, let's say they, they either give up if the things jump to fifty basis points. Hey, they probably would have made a profit. And that's the thing is that you, if, if they're keeping, you know, if if you're at the peg and the peg holds, okay, fine. You may you're just wasting a risk budget. You're you're wasting your balance sheet on something that, that didn't pay off. But if it if they do, you know, de-peg, hey, you got profit. So. Yeah, I mean, I think people might take a run at it. It's it's not crazy, but the once they, you know the, where the craziness is is where you start talking about hyperinflation, or you get people who don't know how Japanese finance works and they don't they they're like really uh, it you know people are coming in and they're analyzing you know they they you know they just uh, make basic errors on how what the Japanese budget is because they don't they don't understand the terminology and you know they're reading wrong and and uh, you know they they're not just just simple 
elementary checks. Like for a while there, you had people worried that, oh my gosh, their interest costs. No, their interest costs are, you know, just look, look at, you know, you just have to look at the numbers. There's no way uh, that the interest costs are high. But the thing was, is they read, they misunderstood what debt service. Uh, and, um, you know, they said, oh, look at this debt service. Well, the debt service included principal repayments. And guess what happens with the T-bill? You, 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 you know, you repay 100% of the principal on a T-bill. So yeah, they have a huge debt service because they're right. rolling over debt. And that's the thing is like, it, it, you know, they, you know, their, uh, you know, their, their debt service was not an interest service, which is, and you know, the, this was, this was uh, from about a decade ago. And they, yeah, and that's the thing you, 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 you can't, you know, this is the problem. Um, but all you need to do is just look at the IMF database and you wouldn't run the, just say, look at the actual, no, no, it's no, and their interest isn't a problem. But that's the thing is that, uh, uh People are just digging into documents they don't understand, and they're making just elementary errors. They just simple back of the envelope say, "No, no, that that's wrong." So, but yeah. you know, whatever. It, 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 you know, basically, you know, so, you know, it's just free money for for Japan for Japanese banks. These people are just providing free money. Everyone come every every three four years. Someone comes in, shorts JGBs and hands over their capital to Japanese banks and well, you know, I mean, Japanese banks got to make money investors got to make money somehow. So whatever it's, a, it's, it's just a little transfer. So. Mm -hmm. you know. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and, you know, going back, um, I wanted to also ask you a little bit about MMT. And so, you know, MMT, uh, you know, when you look at FinTwit, so financial Twitter, a lot of accounts on financial Twitter tend to adopt, very strong right-wing libertarian views uh, you know some typically of those like von Mises, Rothbard and yeah as a function of that they tend to be heavily critical and heavily skeptical of ideas like MMT so one what are the biggest myths about MMT you know what do most people get wrong about it yeah um like like the yeah see what you see is finance yeah they're they're definitely it's a free market bias and libertarian they're they're uh, way more libertarians in finance and on Twitter, like in commentary, broad. Uh, I mean, it it's not necessarily in formal finance. Like they're basically, um, you wouldn't see any, not many Austrians actually trading government bonds. At least they do. They're they're not using the, their Austrian theory, shall we say? Because uh, it's it's. No, you can you can get away with being an Austrian and predicting Japanese hyperinflation if you're a credit analyst or if you're a commodity analyst. It's not going to work if you're a rates analyst. So um, the, but yeah, MMT. It's it's. I mean, I ran to like Warren Mosler. He was he was in Mark, and so he has a like. It's it's through there, and um, you know he had a firm, and you know produce you know financial research so you do have people might not be mmtiers but like like from my point of view like i read minsky and there's a lot of people who would quote minsky and there's a lot of overlap like in terms of how you look at government finance what the mmtiers are uh, like like a lot of you know the mmt story on government finance you know if if you're in rates uh you, you you may like you might disagree with certain things but to a certain extent 
you you can't have too strong objections to a lot of the uh, the you know what what the MMTers are saying about government bonds. Like most of it, like would be you know uh, this the simplest sort of thing that you could say. Uh, the conventional view is oh, if you have government debt, the debt GDP ratio goes up. There's more uh, there's more supply of bonds, so the price falls, so interest rates go up, and that would be a sort of a conventional you could call it a pre MMT view. You like a, a lot of people would say that, and a lot of economists would say that. Um, you know, across across the board, it was pretty standard. And you know, so if you wanted to lower interest rates, well, you have to run the surplus to get the debt GDP. That would like in the '90s, that you know, that would be very common. And that's sort of like you know, the MMT said no, that that's not true. But the thing is, if you if you if you are involved solely in rate, if your day job is trading rates, you you know, you have to be fun, you know, functionally enumerate to not realize, hey, wait a second here, you know, these the look at Japan, you know. The, the high deficits, high debt GDP didn't raise interest rates. And that's it. The, the problem is, is that the people who believed all that never actually, you know, they don't, they don't trade it. They don't look at the data. They just, they just assume, well, so, you know, the supply's up, so the price is down. And that's economics 101. It has to be true. And, you know, they don't actually, you know, they'll, they'll maybe rip, they'll, they'll take, you know, maybe a bond yield out of context, but you don't look at the time series and you just look at, no, it doesn't work that way. So basically that's sort of one of the sort of simplest parts of MMT. And what happened was, I mean, like in the 2010s, that's where a lot of the art, the austerity was about that. And uh, to be honest, those sorts of arguments, you know, uh, you know, from a theoretical point of view, no, not too many people actually disagree with the MMT view anymore. So from my point of view, a lot of the debates uh, are sort of non-debate. Like no one, like people are now debating the political side, like, because there is uh, certainly like you have MMT activists who have a, a political agenda. They, you know, they're de definitely you know, progressive. And so it, it's moved away from a pure sort of economic theory. And they're arguing about, uh, you know, policy implications. And so you've gotten away from sort of just, you know, what is the theory of government finance, which I usually write when we talk about. It's more about what should the government be doing. And that's where the fighting is about. And, um, but so, so, I mean, to, to sort of balance my thing, like I would say, look, for where the MMT debates were in the 2010s, MMT won, and everyone wants to just forget about it. They just said, yeah, we, we, we knew that all along. Where, where I mean, the, the complaint on the MMT uh, is, it was about inflation, like theoretical. If we, if we move away from the politics, was MMT politics bad? I mean, okay, fine. If you don't like the politics, mean, because you, you don't have to be, and you could be, uh, like, it's, I mean, I mean, there's nothing stopping you, uh, you know, like you could, you could be believe in small government, like you, Austrian economics. Yeah. It's not really compatible, but if, if but like from just a, a political, if you say political economy, I think a small government is better. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing stopping you. Like you just, I mean, the, but you know, the MMT, like if you say the government shouldn't exist, well, then you have a problem with MMT because then, because, Hey, you know, the government, 
creates more, you know, it's a monopolist. So, so, so that's, that's what's hard. Like if you think the government shouldn't exist, well, then you're starting to run into a theory, you know, you have a theoretical, because you, you, you think the government shouldn't be a monopolist issuer of money. And, you know, that's sort of most of MT is discussing, you know, hey, you know, it's a monopoly. But where we're getting back to, okay, where, where you would say MMTers drop the ball is on the inflation forecast. And this is sort of, well, I mean, like I would immediately say, um, yeah, everyone, like the consensus dropped the ball on inflation. Everyone has thought it was transitory. I mean, I'm not a forecaster. And so, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, you know, like, I, I mean, I don't, I, well, I make, like, if someone makes a really stupid forecast, I know it's a stupid forecast in real time, I will make fun of it. But I, I don't, I, like, it, reasonable forecasts, I don't, you know, I, I don't go back at people making mistakes. I don't, I, well, I might, but I shouldn't. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't go after people's for because I'm not a forecaster. So, I, I mean, I, you know, I know, I mean, I, I, I'm not, in the, I, I don't really go after it other than, I guess, from a theoretical point of view, say, well, you know, I mean, to, to a certain extent, like for a central bank, well, if you're an inflation forecaster, if you're saying the central bank is an inflation forecaster, if you're not able to forecast inflation, that becomes a problem for you know the belief that thing. So, you know, there's but but you know, I don't really, I mean, I don't I think things are hard to forecast. So I don't I don't I don't pick after like my 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 shtick is that I think things are hard to forecast. I think inflation is hard to forecast. So I don't I don't laugh at people's wrong forecasts because I think it's difficult to forecast. And that's the whole problem that any simple model will break. That's my story. So if someone's model breaks, well, yeah, that's my view. I mean, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's going to happen. You've got a simple inflation model. It's going to blow up. That's, you know, so I don't, I don't pick on it, but, but where yeah. people are going after that, the, the, the MMT or uh, like the like the academic, the prominent MMTers were too dovish on inflation. And like, but that's the thing is there, there's a small number of them and, uh, you know, it was a consensus view, like, you know, and basically if you look at it, most of them were, you know, if you look at the academics, they, they lean progressive and they're not inflation hawks, right? So, you know, it's, it's a certain extent, you know, the, the people who were worried about it tended to be inflation hawks who've been, you know, worried about inflation for like the past decade. And yeah, you know, okay, like, yeah. But that's, that's basically the, the real problem. I mean, there is, a, there is another issue that, uh, you know, MMT, you know, should, you know, uh, like amateurs argue that the, the you know, the, the treasury, the fiscal side of government should be more involved in, uh, in you know controlling inflation, and you can say, well, you know, governments, you know, the like the treasury, like the fiscal side of governments aren't doing a lot to help control inflation, and you can say, aha, I told you so. Like you know, they're not they're not doing that. But the problem is, is that literally everyone, you know, the consensus is is the central banks stop, and that's what they're told. Like I mean. You know the the conventional the mainstream views they're screaming loudly the central bank controls inflation not not the treasury 
So, well, of course, I mean, if, 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 if that's the view if that, like, well, why would you expect God that? Why would you expect the treasury to say we should be, you know, the, you have to change, you have to change the culture that, oh, we've got to take inflation into account when we're doing our budget, you know, yeah. and they say, look, we made a mistake. And, but that, that change in culture never happened. I mean, this is the thing is like, you know, they're saying, oh, look, MMT fail. Look, none of the people in policy positions or very few of them are really, you know, MMTers. I mean, uh, uh, Stephanie, uh, Stephanie Kelton, okay, she was involved, but like, you know, she's not in the treasury. She, she's, you know, she was involved. With, Brian for uh, prime minister. Yeah, but, but yeah, but, but that's it. But they're, they're like, if you look at, you know, the, the people in sort of treasury, ministry of finance, and the central banker, I mean, <clears throat> they, you know, they may or may not disagree, but, but they're, they're, they're not MMTers. The, the people making this, so the, the culture is not MMT. So blaming, you know, what policymakers do on MMT is, is bizarre because they're not. I mean, it's, it's just saying, well, we try to MMT. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, you, you, could, you could say that they've done some things that are similar to what MMTers have done, but it's not what, they were not exactly the policy recommendations. They, you know, and, you know, so it's, but it comes down to politics. A lot of it is just straight politics. And, uh, and, and then the other thing is misrepresentation. And usually on Twitter, uh, most critics, I mean, there, there are some good faith critics on of MMT, but uh, my rule of thumb is if I see a random tweet with, a, if you give me a random tweet of someone saying some MMT, 99% chance is my odds that it's a bad faith critique. And, you know, and that's it. I mean, you know, there, uh, I, I, I wrote a book about MMT and both, you know, what are bad faith? And that's it. Like 99% of the time, it's just bad faith. And that's, that's it. So, uh, and that's what most of it is. And it, it's, it's sort of, yeah, whatever. I mean, you know, the, you know, people arguing back and forth, uh, basically repeating, you know, I mean, part, anything where people are just sort of repeating their political views, I mean, those, they can be interesting for a while, but it's very repetitive. Like, you know, it can, like the first time you see it's interesting, when you see it for a hundred, hundredth time, it's not interesting. That's, that's, it's just the same things going, it's, it's, just, it's the same political arguments going over and over. And to a certain extent, I sort of bow out of it. And I, I'm, I generally have to look for like a longer, like if someone writes an article, I'll deal with it. But even then, most of us are bad faith. But, you know, but, but really, see, it's, it's about inflation. But, but interestingly enough, like if you can say, well, the MMTers are wrong about inflation, that's actually, you go back to the, the argument in the 2010s, the MMTers were saying, there isn't a, a financial limit. Like you can't say, like, like, you know, what is a financial limit? You can't just point to, oh, this, there's a magical debt GDP level that you can't cross, right? That, that was the debate. But, you know, it's actually the, the MMT said, no, the problem, you know, where your limit is on for, for spending is when you start seeing inflation. So if you start complaining about inflation, and that's actually you're, you're, you've, you've accepted like that MMT premise. And you can say, well, the MMT weren't good at forecasting inflation. 
I mean, that's where you can say, aha, well, okay, fine. But, you know, the, if, if, you look, if you read the MMT, there isn't a whole, I mean, they, there are suggestions for making better, you know, inflation forecasts, but they aren't, I mean, no one, no one can go around saying, you know, MMTers or, you know, you know, tons, you know, that it's all mathematical models and stuff, right? They're not, they're not selling MMT on the basis of here, you know, we've got these magical mathematical models to solve all our problems. And so, you know, the, that's, you know, the, there are models, there's maybe not enough, but they, the models exist, but they're certainly not marketing themselves as uh, solving all the problems. The reliance is on automatic stabilizers. I mean, that's sort of my view. Forecasting is too hard, so you rely on automatic stabilizers. And that's it. And, you know, like the, you know, you do sort of have to have, you know, see of the pants uh, estimates. And you can say, well, this inflation overshoot, you know, it, it was, you know, you would expected some, like it, it, that was the point. You know, we, we avoided a deep depression at the cost of inflation. That was the policy trade-off. You knew when some inflation was going to hit. And the thing is, okay, it's overshot. Like it's, it's all unprecedented. Okay, fine. So, you know, you, you, you know, you then have to do something about it. You have to tighten up. And, you know, the question is how, what is the, you know, how quickly, and that, that comes down to, well, MMTers aren't demanding uh, uh, people to have, you know, an immediate recession to deal with inflation because that, that, that you know, it's a, it's a political view, you know, uh, what's worse causing a hard landing and a deep recession or having inflation running at four percent next year, right? You know what's what what's the trade-off? And generally speaking, the MMT are the trade-off that well, given a choice between a depression or four percent inflation, I'll take the I'll I'll take the four percent inflation. And the thing is, a lot of the hard money people will say, no, I'd rather have a depression, throw all the poor you know throw all the poor people out of work. And, you know, because I'm, you know, I want to, I, I don't want the price of, you know, gasoline to go up or something like that. And that's it. And, you know, that it's, it's a political trade off. And, but, you know, that's the thing, like, you know, there's, there's no easy answer. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, we just can't magically get inflation back to 2% without, you know, it might but the odds are it's not going to go back to 2%, just, oh, well, we'll turn a dial. Oh, inflation's 2% again. It's, it's you know, the, the inflationary spike is going to burn out. And it's a question of, do we want to force it to burn out quickly with a, a deep recession? Or do we just let it burn out? And, you know, that's a political trade-off. And that's not, I mean, that's not just, and that's not really MMT. That's political economy. What do you want to see happen? But people are obfuscating and oh, blah, 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 blah. They, you know, that, that, you know, that there isn't politics and it's just, you know, there's a science and you can just turn a dial and boom, inflation goes away and we'll have an optimal outcome. Mm -hmm. Yep. To wrap up the podcast, Brian, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, could you tell the audience a little bit about, you know, where they can find more of your work and where they can find you, especially on places like Twitter? Um, well, on Twitter, um, I'm either Romanchuk Brian or Brian Romanchuk. <laughs> I, I think it's Romanchuk Brian. Um, I've got I've got books. See, hey, uh, you got a lot of them. They, yeah, yeah. They actually they see all they all look the same. 
Um, I, I publish them. I, I like. I, I, they're, they're self-published, but uh, they're, they're available on all the well, most major online stores. Uh, either as eBooks, which, which are cheap. They're, they're uh, way too cheap for the, so they're niche books. They should be more expensive, they're cheap. Or they're pay, the paperbacks, they're relatively small. Um, like this, is a, this, is, this was my first day understanding government finance. If you look at it, it's just have to get this over. See, they're thin. They're they're reports. They're not. They're, if if you think of them, they're novellas. Like if you want to put them in a book book thing, it's it's a novella. They're not novels. Novel length. It's a novella, like forty thousand words. They're shorter, but they're easy. But the idea is that you know it's it's perfect. For an ebook, you don't care. But for for uh, you know for a book, they they are small. They're 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 relatively small report, but they're just covered. The idea is that they're. Uh, all you need to know, just brief, and then you can go for further. Like I, I, I don't want to pad it in with, you know, oh, I need to make it a certain thickness and pad it with extra stuff. So though that's, well, obviously these are the only things I sell. So that's where I, ideally that's where I want my people to go. Cause like the Twitter is free. My, I have a blog, bondeconomics.com. And I also have a, a sub stack and they're, they're basically I, like, it's the same articles um but uh like i've got the ads on my web but i have a sub stack um basically because the the email support was uh dropped so if, if you want to subscribe by email you got to go to the sub stack but it's it's roughly the same material and uh on twitter i i'm i'm on twitter it's mainly jokes i do links but you know i i stuff in I, I retweet interesting stuff and then um but, but yeah, the, the, the various books, like I have MMT, like it, it's fragmented by thing. I have like on uh, uh, understanding government finance, which is just straight government finance. It's MMT oriented, but it's not like, it's not all MMT. It's just like, you know, MMT informed, but it's, you know, conven conventional uh, approach and a discussion of you know what drives like uh, you know deficits blah 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 bond yields i have yep. one on interest rate cycles where I discuss interest rates uh and then i have uh it's modern modern monetary theory in the recovery which is mainly an mmt primer as well as a bit of a discussion of the like the recent history i, I wrote it during the the pandemic and i talked a bit about the the upcoming recovery and it was totally wrong uh i didn't have forecasts in there uh, but thankfully i sort of extra i extrapolated i said look if it's a i discussed the low inflation like i spent most of the time discussing the low inflationary environment of the past and i did throw my hands in the area i mean I, I i hopefully said in there i expected some inflation but i was sort of discussing you know how mt and if you had a, a, a slow recovery, and unfortunately we didn't have that, it's 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 a, it's a hot recovery. So um, I just the the but at least it it so you know the the forecast was to to what extent there was a forecast and there was horribly wrong, but it, it at least gives you the economic history. It gives you the setup of what what was what was sort of like from 1990 to 2020. What was the world like? And, you know, what were sort of the debates and then boom, and the thing, you know, things are different, but at least uh, what I hope is 
if you would say, in addition to learning what MMT is, say, how is the current environment different than the past? Because mm-hmm. one, one of the problems is, is people, uh, you, know, you know, they don't spend too much time discussing the sort of the environment. And you don't really have the, what were the forces? Like, how is today different than 2015? And, you know, it's most people, you know, the, you know, like most discussions don't really go into that. And I, I think in order to sort of understand where we are now, you still have to say what's changed. And then you have to say, you know, is it going to stay changed or is it going to go back to where it was a few years ago? And like, you know, maybe it doesn't go back, but you sort of have to have a little, little bit of context. And most people, like I, I, I do it fairly neutral because I'm not selling a forecast. Like, I, I mean, I, I avoid, I, I don't. So I'm not telling people this, this is what's going to happen. So I can sort of say, look, this is, you know, you know, this is what's happened in the past. And then you can draw your own conclusions. So mm-hmm. anyway, so th- those are like the various books. They're, they're on Amazon. Like that's the, where most people buy it. But they're the, uh, other, other books, you can, they're pre-ordered. You know, they're, they're too niche to be, uh, you know, to, to get into a bookstore, it's not going to happen. But they're, they're, they're niche books. They're, you buy them online. And, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, like there's a few of them, like have one recessions, one on, one on building models in Python. Uh, I I forget how many. I've actually lost track of how many I have now. It's been basically one year. So uh, it's eight eight or something. I've got one. I've got one on inflation, but it's sort of uh, frozen. It's it's. Uh, I, I'm waiting. Um, I, I wanted to wait for inflation to calm down before publishing it, um, but. Uh, uh, I, I might do one on banking. I'm sort of, I started working on one banking, but anyway, so that's where they are. But like, there's my blog, and to a certain extent, I I, I don't um, I, I I do have references to other sources, usually in my thing, like you know, uh, coming up. But you know, I, I I'm not right now. Most most of what I'm writing is drafts of what's going in the future books, so I'm not sort of react it's not like the old blogosphere where we're sort of arguing between blog to blog yeah. i'm not i'm not doing that content as much i mean historically i did that a lot but now it's mainly more i'm writing drafts with some topical stuff coming in so uh it's more like more primers that's that's where what i'm saying on the blog. like the on twitter i have a lot more like i, I it's basically twitter's where I'm reacting to what other people are saying a bit more because because it, it's hey, it's only uh, you know there you know a couple hundred characters I just do that I can just make a few points and not have a long-winded article so my 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 content if in terms of reacting to things I'm more active on Twitter like I have a Facebook account but uh, I, there's nothing on there I guess if you absolutely need to contact me on, basically on there someone wants to contact me I I have a a public account but it's not there but basically on twitter is, is the where you like that's where if you want to say you know react to things that's where i am and my my blogs are more primers got it got it brian thank you so much for a wonderful okay. podcast it was awesome having okay. you on okay thanks okay yeah okay. um,